What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is Haus Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, because mm-hmm. we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs yep. will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah. You'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up. North, further north, yep. in, in North America, yep. and go and see old mate Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. If I'm in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benware. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. Uh, I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home, train that dog. Well, you're sipping- Cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over Gallivanting. The <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Patty Waddy. I'm joined... <laughs> I'm <laughs> joined by Glenny Wenny. I'm still in lockdown, bro. And will be forever. Uh, I think it's making us go squirrely. Yeah. Considering those wacky introductions. Patty Wetty and Glenny Wenny. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. Still at it. Still trying to podcast over the interwebs, even though we're not that far apart. Mm. What's going on out there? Anything exciting happening? You got well, many dogs in the kennels? What's happening? No, we haven't got many dogs in. No one has. Most daycares and everything are pretty much shut down. Groomers are doing okay. They're busy. 
daycare's not too bad. Training's good, but the average boarding dogs aren't in anymore because travel's just completely restricted and they're just making it harder and harder and harder. And now they're going into mm. military mode. Did you see that we were actually, like Australia was actually spoken about on the Joe Rogan show? Like he's literally saying, what the fuck is going on in this country? Yeah, but again, I, I think that sort of situation, I also saw it being spoken about on like a Fox News thing and some dickhead Australian politician throwing fuel on a fire. But of course, like typical media, they don't give the context to what's happening. So they're like, oh, Australia's freaking out over having 400 cases or today we had 600 something cases per day. And it's like, yeah, but we were at zero. So it's not as though we're at 400 and have been at that number and they're panicking over that, that we got to zero and we're leading a normal life for a really long time. So like, I don't know what's right and what's wrong, but it's the classic media just sort of here's half of the truth. And here's, here's some factually true things minus all the context to have it make any sense to you. How dare you, sir? How dare you suggest <laughs> that our media is full of shit? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Crazy times. So other news on other news, IACP had to literally rush in and cancel their live conference, the conference in San Diego, because they are getting like hundreds of thousands of COVID cases. Delta is like swept through the United States for, you know, like it's rampaging over there. And as we, you and I were just talking about online before we press the record button, friends of ours, like lots of people that we actually know, Dawn and Bill Church had it. Mm. So yeah, plenty of people that we know over there have had it or got it. There's people on the board that have it. I don't know if they've still currently got it, but they have been impacted by COVID. So it's really smashing its way through pretty much every continent at the moment. This new variant's pretty aggressive. Yep, it's pretty scary, mm. but that's life. So other things that have changed as well, up until recently, I was the director oversight for the European Membership Committee trying to get a conference going over there. We were working pretty hard on it, but that's changed. I am stepping out of the EMC and I am now being director oversight of a new committee that we're forming for protection sports. Yeah, right. Okay. What's the mandate there? Still yet to be decided. We're primarily looking into, I think it was a, it was a good suggestion you made a while ago and it sort of went into the archives for a little bit of time. And we've been thinking about it and talking about it periodically because protection sports are coming under unreasonable and unnecessary scrutiny in a large area of the world. Like there's a lot of people who are just looking into it who once again know very little about it, but yet they're poking their nose into predominantly a very safe and very well-organized and very high-functioning sport without all of the required information and making waves for people. So I think it's really about time as a community that we stop playing small fish. We stop playing these, I've got a group of 20 people and we're going to take on the world because no one cares about you. If you haven't got that through your head yet, you really need to start clearly thinking about it because 20 people are nothing in the grand scheme of things. What needs to happen is it needs to be an organization where there is thousands and thousands and thousands of us, you know, like all around the world. There needs to be brothers and sisters united in protecting this whole aspect. Or one day, I'm convinced, one day we will lose it. 
one day we will lose it because there just won't be enough fighting people to stop it anymore. I don't know when yeah. that will be or what that will look like, but there's always a constant, it's always on the agenda of the people who want to see it gone. It might roll over to the next year and the year after that and the year after that, but it's still always on the agenda. And the new people who come in, they take up arms against it and they know less about it than the people who knew something about it and had an issue with it before. Therein lies the problem. And that's why we really need to utilise cool heads and better forms of education. And there's some greats in this industry. There's, I mean, there's some really, really good men and women around the world that are just doing phenomenal work, like phenomenal work, next level stuff with their dogs. And if they're not around to tell the tale and pass it to the next generation because they just got too involved in their sport or too short-sighted to see the long game, it's a problem for everyone. So my role will be chairing that and, you know, trying to unite the groups together and it's not about making us all be friends and hold hands and say prayers at the table together. It's just about us coming together to have and formulate better information and try and squash the hysteria and, as I said, grow numbers. So what's this space? Yeah, I think, mate, I think, it's, a, I think it's good that the IACP is going to take some measures to try and protect white sports because I've been saying for a long time, I think it's an education piece. I think mm. that it's totally fair for the average person, yeah, the average dog lover, right, who has a big voice because they're online and that groundswell movement can get a lot of stuff done. And when they look at a video or something of a dog biting someone and they're in a suit or whatever, they might watch a scenario, a Mondio ring scenario or something like that and not be able to make heads nor tails of what they're actually seeing. I think it's fair that they get all riled up about like, is this safe for the dogs and why are we training that and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think the opposition really between people who know and people who don't come because the conflict happens because we're not being very civil with each other and understanding each other's point of view. Mm. Just talking that through is usually the way to do it. And, and it's, people see us doing bite work. I don't do bite work in public, but seldom, but when people comment on things or whatever, or they do see us, it's an opportunity to educate and say, Hey, look, this is the deal. You know, this is how the dogs work. I've had a lady one time at the park. I wasn't even doing bite work. I was working on a wedge yelling at me and telling me she was going to call the police. I was like, go for it. Like I might sell this dog to them. That's who I'm prepping for. (laughs) You might make money here and now, but Sunlight is the greatest form of disinfectant, I think. So when like there's no there's no problems going on in the industry, we should be out in the open and let people see and let people talk about it and we just explain it and don't leave people's imaginations to fill in the gaps of what's really going on with bite sports is show them so that they can understand it and go like, hey, this is actually some of the best dog trainers. This is where they play. This is where they are developed. This is the techniques that the dog trainer that came to your house or ran your puppy school or whatever, chances are they know what they know because of the trickle down of the people who are the world champion competitors in these particular sports. That's how that information gets developed and disseminated. And without people pushing the boundaries in those types of sports, in dog sports, then there will be no further development in training for large part because it's competition that drives the skill sets forward. Someone sent me an Instagram post of some pet dog trainer in America today with, you know, 30,000 Instagram followers that actually had a post saying that she really knew everything that she would ever need to know about dog training and was at this point only interested in marketing and so forth, right? And it's like, yeah, that's the attitude of some people that I've got enough. I don't need any more. And 
we need, we desperately need the people who are in competition so that there's never enough. They always need more. And they're the people who are getting better and better and better and finding more and more tricks and learning better ways to motivate dogs and all the things that eventually five, 10, 15 years later trickles down into puppy classes. And that very highly specialized nuanced information can now be delivered and digested in a way that's suitable for the average pet dog owner. Mm. And people just don't know that. They just don't know. So it, you know, it behoves us to educate them on that. The other thing I think that would be good in that IACP space, if there is going to be a protection of bite sports type committee would be involvement of police and military. I think that the police and militaries all around the world really resting on their laurels not overly concerned about what happens in the bite sport space because they, they think they don't play sports. They think they don't have sport dogs. And it's like, you know, your dogs are sport dogs. You, they've come from sporting backgrounds. Very few police and military have completely standalone breeding programs. And the ones that do have them are usually not very good. If they're a completely standalone one, they're not bringing in new blood. And so chances are your police dog, especially if you're in the States, chances are your police dog has titles or was being prepared for titles in the sport. And so it's those people who are breeding for the sports, testing the dogs, testing their trainability, their workability and that sort of thing, and essentially preparing them for the police. It is the sports that are doing that. And if all bite sports were suddenly made illegal today, it would not be long before the police and military can't fill their kennels with suitable dogs because mm. their dogs are being raised, trained and produced by civilians for the most part. You made a very good point and that what you just talked about then was a very good observation, but you made a very good point some time ago during one of the sessions that we did where we were talking about this and even I had a point of view that there was a fundamental difference between it, but you made an observation and a point where you said, most military and police are being assessed with their dogs every year. So if that's the case, they're at competition standards where somebody is sitting there with a clipboard going through yeah. a flick and tick of, can your dog do this? Yes. Can your dog do that? Yes. Can your dog do this? Yes. Is it under control in this? Yes. Well, then you qualify for another year. So they're being qualified every year. So literally they are being judged and scored. Yeah. I have had this conversation many, many times when people want to draw a distinction between street dogs and sport dogs. And I just say that to them. Hey, you ever have someone assess you on how well you do an obedience portion? Yeah, we have to do that every year. Okay. Do you ever do any bite work section then and you get assessed on that? Yeah, every year we have to do that. What about the detection, nose work stuff? Yeah, we have to do that. It's like, that's a sport. You do, you do IPO. <laughs> <Like> you do. <laughs> because it's the same shit. Yep. You're just doing it slightly differently. You're doing something more akin to PSA. Yeah. I think about this a lot and we get asked to yeah, I think that it comes up quite a lot, not just with us, lots of people, whoever is involved in sport dogs, as well as police and military type dogs, the question always comes up like, what's the difference between the two? Because I even referred to my dog as a sport dog. And I think everybody has different opinions on that. But my opinion on it is really, it has less to do with the dog himself and more to do with the training that the dog gets. And so you know, from my point of view, what I would say I'm willing to do things to and for a sport dog that I'm not willing to do for a real working dog, a dog that would work the streets. And to, you know, to elaborate further on that, like I'm prepared to make a sport dog think he's something that he's not, you know, and like develop a scenario where he truly thinks that he can't be beaten and, and feels safe and in the game that he's playing. Because if my training collapses and 
the scenario comes up that the dog hasn't seen and the dog gets chased off the field, the decoy that's carrying a, a clatter stick doesn't beat the handler to death with that clatter stick. They stop charging and it's like, okay, back to the drawing board for my training, right? So that's what I'm prepared to do with the sport dog. I'm prepared to have that happen and go back to the drawing board and think about training in that. From my point of view, with a working dog, I'm unprepared to do those things for that dog. So like there's a genetic component that has to be there for a working dog. And I think that, you know, anybody that's ever been in a, a proper fight, you know, like proper battle will tell you that at some point you're going to need to call upon the strength of your ancestors, right? Like no matter how much training you have, there's that point where there's a genetic component to it. And if the dog doesn't have some powerful ancestors to call on, he'll crumble because no matter how much training you have, when the pressure gets fully real, the raw genetics is there. So a sport dog, a dog that I would call a sport dog, say my own dog, his genetics are great. He has the capacity to be a working dog. Absolutely. It's not necessarily a difference in the dog. It's the type of training that I'm willing to do for them. Mm. I don't know. Does that make any sense? I don't know. It all makes sense. A lot of these things are open to, collective interpretations. There's a lot of people who have a, a variation of beliefs in what a sporting dog does and the job of it and how the dog views the picture that's being presented to them. Whereas when they're talking about a civil dog, where you're talking about a street operational dog in law enforcement, whether it be private security or government work, I guess the old argument for that or the old debate or discussion, whatever you want to call it, was that the sport dog was more aware of I'm stimulated by the clothes that you wear and the tools that you have on you during the time where a civil dog went, I don't care about any of that. A picture of a man running or something like that excites me or a man running towards you with a weapon, you know, like I don't need a, a, a sleeve or a suit to stimulate my desire to want to bite you. So mm-hmm. that was the old version of the discussion that used to be around in that day. The sport dog always went for the sleeve where the, the civil dog, didn't care what you were doing. There are people who present a a picture where they say, well, my dog's happy to go for a sleeve and it's happy to go for a man. It doesn't matter. It it exists between both. However, in saying that, I would probably suggest that the dog has been incorporated into, well, training of that style has been incorporated into the dog's picture. The dog understands that sleeve or no sleeve, I still need to yeah. take the bite. And, and I want to take the bite. Some dogs just want to do that. There are some dogs who have never experienced that before, yet they still desire to want to take a civil bite. Whereas there have been dogs, and I know the dogs, I've tested them myself, where wearing a undercover arm or something like that, and the dog freaked out when it bit. Like not just one dog, I'm talking several dogs, because that picture wasn't their normal picture. They didn't understand that. Like they thought, hey, hang on, where is the device? Why aren't you wearing this big bulky sleeve? That's the picture I'm used to. It didn't mean that the dog was incapable of doing that. It just meant that the dog was – it's like a lot of people who do semi-contact martial arts. And, you know, they're Mm. used to being in a dojo where everything is controlled. And then when they get in a real street fight and get somebody who doesn't care about kicking their ass or, you know, doesn't bow to them or show them respect or anything like that because they're a higher belt than them, they just go over there and sock them straight in the mouth. It's pretty much like Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And, you know, these things kind of reveal who you are and what your medal is when those sort of things happen. It happens to dogs. It happens to people. I remember when it happened to me when I was a kid when I first got in my first fight and I got punched in the mouth. 
I sort of sat there and cried for a little bit and then I socked the other kid in the mouth and because, you know, it was alarming. I was, I still, I remember it. It was one of those searing sort of moments that, you know, you have that sort of classical effect at transport your time. I can still see that kid's face, you know, from punching me in the eye and, you know, only little kids and so forth, but you just don't know what's going to happen until something like that happens. And I remember, I remember like sitting there and having a sook over it and I whacked him back and then, you know, he had a sook about it and then he ran off and told the teacher. So that was, that was my first introduction to having a bit of fisticuffs, but Dogs are, you know, like I've seen dogs like this. I've seen dogs who have come to training for years and years and years and been worked in a picture. The picture was presented. The picture was safe. And then when the picture was unsafe, the dog react differently. It reminds me of this thing that we used to do at ADT in the early days called walk the gauntlet. And primarily it was either Boyd or one of the other trainers who would wear a suit and you would walk down a pathway, which was all the way down the back. And it was just this path that you, you never really did any dog training, but or any bite sports, that was always done up the front of the property. But down this end, we'd test the dogs out to see if they were going to pass their tests or not. So primarily, Boyd would just wear a suit. You'd be walking down, he'd jump out and grab you on them. It was, you know, almost pitch black. <laughs> it was risky you'd probably get bitten by your own dog because it was only just like mm-hmm. very, very dimly lit. But it was good to see some of the dogs just stood there barking and didn't know what to do. Some of the dogs latched hold straight away. Harley was one of them. It was a very proud moment for me. But some dogs just didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to combat that situation. And these are dogs that were at the facility for around two years. You know, so they'd been training a long time and they'd seen the picture of decoy comes out, comes at you with a padded stick or a clatter stick or something like that, runs at you. You know, we used to do courage tests on the field with sleeves and these dogs would rise to the occasion, except for when it got real because they just didn't understand that picture. Yeah, so that's why I kind of think that in that space, there's almost like three categories of dogs that do bite, right? Mm. Like there's the genetic killers that were going to be that way no matter what, and yep. they're biting, they don't give a shit, and they're, you know, they're the best dogs. Then there's this giant middle ground of dogs that have the capacity to get there but will need help, right? Like they, they if you just threw them in at the deep end, they would sink. You're going to have to teach them to swim and then they'll be fine. And I think that's the overwhelming majority of dogs. And I think that a lot, a lot, a lot of working dogs get washed out because most, not most, but, you know, a lot of traditional working dog people really are counting on the genetics being there and and counting on it. If it's not there, they don't know how to put it in. Absolutely. And, and I think that for the most part, that's sort of people who are, have the luxury of washing out dogs or just complaining, but you go somewhere like Tar Hill or you know, any one of the, the places that train police dogs, like they are able to get those dogs that could go either way and make sure that they go the right way because it's a business. And they, that's what I'm talking about is that's the sort of leading edge of dog training is getting the dogs that are sort of in that pool in the middle and showing them how you can and should do this. And this is how you should react in those situations and good training. Those dogs can be totally awesome on the street and work great and no training or the wrong training. Then they, they don't engage. And they're those dogs you're talking about that get into the weird bark or don't understand the picture because they don't see the equipment and that kind of stuff. Like I often hear that when people, you know, the dog will dog bites like a crocodile on the suit, but then doesn't in real life. And they call the dog a cur. And it's like, yeah, that's possible. But also maybe you know, your training has led him to think that that's the only circumstances he's allowed to bite in. And he didn't really understand this picture. You haven't shown him that picture before, especially when it's a flea bite. Like if a dog doesn't bite on the flea, that's usually always an equipment issue. Like, mm. because 
most dogs are pretty happy to bite someone that's running away. It's like when it's a frontal pressure and the dog doesn't bite, then that's usually we might say, uh, that probably is a, a nerve issue, right? But on a flea bite, if the dog's running along beside the people and not engaging, more often than not, that's going to be a, an equipment issue that they, they haven't been taught how and where to bite absent the equipment. But then there's probably a third category of dogs that just aren't suitable. They just aren't going to make it. And that's, you know, that's a huge chunk of dogs as well. But I think it's very common, especially in the hunting world, in that working dog world, there's a lot of the 100% reliance on the genetics because the training maybe isn't there, right? And they're counting on the dog being born with the traits to know how to do that. And that's great because those dogs do come along and those dogs work out not because of the training they get, it's in spite of the training they get, right? But I think there's that huge majority of dogs in the middle that could go either way that, you know, with the right nurturing, the right training, they can totally work the street and be totally fine. And those top end dogs, that first category and that second category, and even the third category can be sport dogs, but only the top end dogs and the ones that are raised correctly from the middle category can be proper working dogs. Mm. And just because a dog plays sports, that's what I was trying to get at. Just because a dog plays sports doesn't mean it's not suitable to be a working dog on the street. And I think that's a, that's a form of ignorance that we sometimes see from strictly working dog people who haven't been involved in the sports, especially at the top end, the dogs, a French ring three, Mondio three, PSA three dog, chances are they're going to be highly suitable to have been working dogs. Might be too late for them because, you know, by the time they get to that age and they're, they're in those sports, but those dogs would have been suitable because the amount of training and the character that's going to be required of that dog is highly likely to have made it possible to be a working dog. It just ended up in sport dog hands. And that's it. Yeah, that's exactly the case with my dog that like he's the only one from the litter. Well, it's the only one from the litter still around, unfortunately, but he ended up in my hands and is a sport dog. But if he'd been sold to someone else, he could just as easily have ended up working the streets and Mm. he'd be just as happy, I think, doing either. Yeah, I totally agree. I think when you're talking about those dogs that wash out, like that happens in every field. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about protection sports or scent detection or whatever. There's always going to be dogs in that field who just aren't suitable for that. It doesn't mean they're not suitable to be a good pet or a dog that you can have fun with or a dog that somebody who wants to play around with a dog, can't learn a lot from it. But when you're getting into the serious applications, Avery, it was Avery Keller who was chatting with me the other day and was showing me a picture of a young dog that Avery's got. And I think it's a GSP cross or something like that. Avery just flicked me a couple of videos and she said, would you mind casting your eye over this dog? I'm thinking about this dog for potential scent work. From what I could see, and I'm watching a video, so I've, you know, you've got to be a little bit liberal-minded when you're watching a video of a dog. But what I could see from the dog... I asked a lot of questions. I said, well, what do you think? Because I already had a summary of what I thought, but I said, what do you think of the dog's drive? It's play drive, it's prey drive, and then it's food drive. And then David came back to me and said, probably most of it would be around six out of 10. And I said, so what are your requirements for work? Are you looking for a six out of 10 dog or are you looking for a nine out of 10 dog? He said, yeah, nine out of 10 dog. And I said, well, that answers your question for it. And I said, because that's what I see too. I see a six out of 10 dog. And I said, the problem with that six out of 10 dog, it could raise up a little bit or it could lower down a little bit or it could stay the same. 
they never really spike right up to the nine out of 10. I said, you're better off looking for the right dog, what you want when you're getting into your conservation work and so forth. You really want a dog that's not distracted, doesn't have that high level of independency where it just wants to do its own thing and sniff its own thing. You really want it. You want a sort of relationship between the two of them. And that's the same thing that I would like to see when I've got a good sporting dog, but also a dog that could transfer over and do the work for me. So early in my career with Harley, I had no idea what I wanted to do with him. I was only a kid then. Like I was in my early 20s when I first got into training with him and I I didn't know whether I wanted to do sport. I didn't really even know much about Schutzen until I met Alec Jones. And to be honest, I didn't even really think Harley would bite someone. I was really, really perplexed about that whole process. You know, everyone kept saying to me, oh, he's just a man-made dog. He's a man-made dog. Because he would bite a suit, he'd bite people anywhere on the suit, he'd bite in the ass, he'd bite in the leg, on the shoulder, in the, in the bicep, whatever picture was presented to him, he'd take it. And everyone kept saying, he's just a, a suit dog, he won't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, that's alarming because I'm actually training him for a protection dog, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get involved in security. And it wasn't yeah. until one night where shit got real on a job, I will admit, Openly, I was nervous and I doubted him, but he hit the guy like a cannonball. There was no hesitation in the dog whatsoever. I hesitated. He didn't. He went straight in and and nailed the guy and um, got Mm. him good too, you know, like really put him down. Even though it was good, it was a good thing he did his job. I probably have a little bit of PTSD about it because I can actually remember it vividly, like everything about it. I can hear the guy screaming and I I have for years. I've actually had dreams where I've woken up from hearing the guy yelling because he screamed that loud. Like the second time it happened and he, he bit someone who tried to kick me in when I was working and that didn't impact me. But I think because it was my cherry one where he, he mm. you know, like the first time it ever happened, I went, wow, you know, and it was a pretty good bite too. But Harley never changed. Like he never, even though he bit someone, he never lost his evenness, you know, for a loving, friendly family dog that was good around kids and dogs and other people and everything, which was just a fucking delight for me. The fact that, you know, like I go, I could go over, I could play sports with him, you know, like I started doing Schutzen with him and so forth. And I was, you know, I was still involved with ADT and I did a heap of stuff with him. And even really early days with KMPV, I mean, I played with that, never really went anywhere with it. It just sort of had a little bit of a bit of fun with the guys who were training and, you know, they were a good bunch mm. of guys. But the one thing that I really did enjoy was that, he could cross over between anything that I wanted him to do. It didn't matter if it was real, it was real. If it was sport, if it was sport, if it was playing with a a bunch of kids or having a cat sit on his back for a photo shoot or down at the local TV station to do some filming or something like that, he would just blend into any environment. I mean, really he was the ultimate dog for me. He was my ultimate dog. That's a really great thing when people get to access that type of thing. It's a bit of a freak when you do get those dogs, but I will say this for the comment where people said he's a man-made dog. There's some truth in that. Like he was a dog that I did a lot of work with. I mean, at that time I was completely obsessed about him and doing the work with the dog. That was my life. Then he was training dogs every day and training people every day. It was just all I looked forward to doing. You know, I'd literally finish work and I would just rush straight out, get the dog, rush out to the park or go down to the training center and do those sort of things. So that was his world and he was presented with that but you know before i know you got something to say but just before any of that eventuated with him he was a goofy dog you know like he was a bit like macho is now macho is he's just sort of to exit that hump where i've been really concerned that he just wouldn't do it where he's now showing courage and he's jumping on top of cars and biting wedges and doing all fun sort of stuff 
Whereas before, Macho was sort of like run over, he'd show a lot of interest, and then he'd just run underneath a wedge or something like that, something bizarre, where I just think, mm. you know, what's going through this dog's mind? But he's just a goofy puppy. And Harley was a real goof with things like that. He would do silly things, but then all of a sudden a switch changed in him, and he was completely everything that we were doing. He was, he was focused. He had a very, very good dedication to all the work that we did with him. It's a bit different to that first category dog that you were talking about before, with the which is the genetic monster. Um, he wasn't mm. a genetic monster because nobody really knew his genetics. He was a you know he was an unknown dog. He was a crossbreed. So how do you determine what's a genetic monster? But you generally see that in him. Like I would probably say to a degree, Randy's a bit of a genetic monster because he hasn't changed tempo since he was seven weeks old. Randy had come in. He'd bite everything. He loved biting. He doesn't give a fuck. You know, like biting's his world. He's not a crazy dog. He's not insane or anything like that, but he's never gone through those huge ebbs and flows that a lot of my other dogs have gone through. He's just, if you could see him at seven weeks, you'd just go, oh yeah, he's, he didn't change. If, if I could take you back in time, he'd say it's almost the same type of dog. Mm. Yeah. And I think, as you say there, like Harley and most dogs for that matter are in that second category of dogs that could kind of go each way, yes. right? Like they, they, it's there, but it just needs help along rather than, you know, like you couldn't stop it if you tried. I think that's, that's overwhelmingly the majority of dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we did actually have a topic before we got involved in this, which sort of came <laughs> from this, all of this conversation stemmed from the fact that the ICP is now looking into a bite sports committee, which again, I think is a fabulous idea. When John Imler and Melanie and I spoke about it, I thought, yeah, I do want to do this, but not only do I want to do it, but I want to do it right. I want to make sure that it's represented well, that people that are on the committee want to be on the committee. And also with that type of person that's on the committee, the type of person I want on that committee is that middle type of dog that we were just talking about before. People that are evenly tempered, that aren't looking to go out and spank everybody and teach them a lesson um, because that's never going to win us any favours or any support. What we do need, what the entire organisation needs, not just the ICP, the bite sports groups in, in general, is we need people who listen and people who think and people who deliver well they're not only great on the field, but they're also very good, approachable, even-tempered people as well that can have a conversation with people and don't get sick of having conversations with people because, unfortunately, these sort of things, all of these sort of things, is when you get involved in this, it's like getting involved in politics. You have to remember to represent your, your people evenly. Even though some politicians, I just have no time for them, there are some politicians out there who do remember the oath that they took is to represent the people in their municipality. That's what I want in this organisation, in this committee, is I do want people representing their sport, their respective sports like PSA, IGP, the ring sports as such. And what I want is the community to, to work with us all on there and talk to us about the right type of people. I don't care if it's a man, I don't care if it's a woman, I don't care if they're you know in their America or in Australia or overseas. What I do care about is that it's somebody who remembers that when you're on a committee, you have to commit to it. Like you have to actually turn up and make the time. You can't just say, oh, look, you know, this is a volunteer thing. I've got other things I need to do. Well, we've all got other things we need to do. I mean, you serve on committees. I've served on committees and boards and so forth. And, you know, if you're committed to that, you need to actually get on there and do the work. You've got to remember that what we're doing is we're working to preserve what we all want to do 
well, the, for the people who are in bite sports, we're working to preserve that and and make sure that we've got salient information that governments and just the general public, as you were saying before, Pat, I think that we just need to remember that there's going to be people who are seeing a different picture. That was a point I did want to make before. There's a lot of videos out there, and I understand why people put these videos out there, but there's videos where there's, you know, like you've got some tough music playing in the background, a dog tearing down a field, smashing a decoy and dropping them on their ass. And that's what the video is. And they're on all social media. So there's like, there's hundreds of those videos of somebody coming out and then you'll see a splash screen of, you know, something blowing up or blood dripping or something like that. And <laughs> and that's what that's what the general public get to see because the, this is public information that they're watching, their kids are watching, people in their family and they go, oh my God, this is brutal. They're not standing on the side of the field with you watching that and then patting the dog when the dog goes by and seeing that, you know, like a lot of these dogs have relationships with everybody, like all yep. the dogs do at PSA when you get down there and they're kissing you on the face and, you know, or picking them up or playing with them or doing some training with the same dog that just did bite work with you five minutes ago. Yeah. I remember the very early days of ADT where some of these dogs were, who were still very serious dogs were also your best friends. They would, yeah. they would look forward to coming for you and they looked forward to sparring with you. They looked forward to getting in the spa, but they also knew that this dog, when the sparring session was over, the dog would then come over and you, that dog and you had a, a, an amazing relationship where even the owner yeah. of the dog, the person who you know fed the dog, owned the dog, said, man, I, I wish I had a relationship with my own dog like you've got. And I said, well, you need to work on that, man, because that's what this is all about. Is uh, And they said, yeah, but the dog looks forward to seeing you more. And I said, I just offer a lot of relief. I offer relief from what this dog really needs in its life right now. And I said, but when you work out how to do that and you captivate that relationship with your dog, you'll find that the dog knows that you're the person who's really offering the relief and you're the person bringing the dog to the field to do the work. Like the dog will know it's you, not just you just happen to open the car door for it. It'll realize that you provide the training and that's the job of me to help you learn how to do those type of things is teach you how to have your dog understand what access points are. Yeah. And I think everybody involved in dog sports can contribute to that perception piece in one way or another. Like if you have the kind of dog that is social and you want to show the big hits and the big bites and that kind of stuff, then you should also show the dog being social. And if you've got a dog that's not social, a dog that holds grudges and doesn't want to hang with people afterwards, you know, and that's totally fine too, then you should show the control work, right? So like, I think that it's about balance and showing that to show like, yeah, if you want to show off your dog, we'll nail people and we'll bite on command and the big hits and because it's all cool to see and you shouldn't hide that. That should be out. Everybody should be putting cool video like that up to go for it. But I think in the interest of protecting your livelihood and your sport, then you should also show some balance to that and show because the dog will be one of those things. The dog's either going to be social with people and can can be pat by the decoy afterwards, can be turned off and just becomes a normal dog and is no longer working. He's either that or if you've got a really aggressive dog and you know he doesn't want to be pat and you know all the things that we know those dogs exist and they're they're not uncommon. 
But if you're going to live with that kind of dog, you have the mechanisms in place. If, you, if you've got that dog, you have those mechanisms in place. You have the, either the control work or the equipment or whatever it is to make sure that nothing ever goes wrong. And if you're putting up video of the dog biting, then you are successful in doing that stuff because you're putting it out there. Like, unless you're a legit moron, like you, you shouldn't be showing your completely uncontrolled dog biting random people in the street. And if you are doing that, I'm sure you sure as fuck you ain't listening to us. So like, but I think that if you've got the capacity to show that balance, you absolutely should in the interest of protecting, you know, the, the public perception of the sports. I think that that is super important and maybe kind of critical going forward as these sports become more and more niche and more and more sort of less palatable by the average citizen. There's always going to be a degree of people who don't like it just because they don't like it. You're, of course. Every support group is always going to have their degree of critics. The more people that you get to know in the world, there's times where I read a lot of the comments that come out about the canine paradigm and there's like there's a bunch of people who say really kind and really supportive things about us. And occasionally there's people who go, these guys are fucking clowns. Like they're, you know, they, they sound like two white guys talking shit about dog training, which they don't seem to know much about, which I kind of laugh Someone about. Someone us two white guys. They, they called us two white guys. And it was a white guy who called us two white guys. <laughs> no shit with two white guys. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> It was a bizarre, stupid thing to point it, out. It was. It was a bizarre uh, comment. And, and Pat has a beard. Pat has a beard. <laughs> and, and the sky is blue. No shit. Yeah, and, fucking and, Captain Obvious. If it wasn't so stupid, it would almost be slapstick. It was that funny. But you're always going to get the slings and arrows of people who don't support what they don't understand or what they don't really like. Like there's genres of music, for argument's sake, which people absolutely adore and they hate others. I mean, I'm not a particular fan of rap, but there's some of it I love. Like I hear a certain type of tune, I think, oh, that's awesome. That's got some real beat to it and some real feel to it. That's just the way the world revolves is some people will love it and some people won't. But I absolutely support and agree with what you said before. I think people that put these videos out and they do show these big field hits and they show these dogs foaming at the mouth and jumping up and down on a table or something like that, there should be perspective to what they're putting out there. To be honest, these ones of dogs barreling down the fields, they're always going to be the ones that get the big hits and the numbers and so forth. Like when you're a decoy or when you're a trainer and you've got a dog that's doing this or you look good as a decoy, of course you want to show off and farm a few likes and go, well, I'm out there taking the bruises and so forth. It's nice to be recognized for my skill and for my art because honestly it is an art. When you're a good decoy, it's artwork. Oh, yeah. First of all, learning how to get a dog to hit you in those areas and to stay on those areas and to work cleanly. And when we say work cleanly, for people who are listening to this and don't know what that means, that means having a dog that doesn't transfer off, doesn't become unpredictable or dangerous in the bite, but it stays where you put it as a decoy. So there's a real skill, like a fucking big skill between the handler and the decoy to actually teach the dog what that entire picture looks like. And plus when a dog is working like that and you can see that a dog is hitting hard and, you know, staying on an area, what the success of the decoy or the coaching team at large, including the handler have taught the dog, is to feel very confident about the work that it's doing. The dog is not doing this because the dog is afraid or the dog is aggressive. The dog likes this and the dog understands this picture is comfortable. I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable with my team. My team makes me feel supported. Like, this isn't dangerous to me and I don't have to feel dangerous or I don't have to be unpredictable. 
So you teach a dog to become very clean and that's why people like to show this work. Like they present it to say, I've been working with this dog and this handler for 18 months and look how nice the dog is working. And it's confident enough to come flying down the field and hit me like a ton of bricks and not slow down because it knows, A, I'm not going to jack its neck up and hurt it. Um, I'm not going to fall over and roll on top of it, but I'm going to catch it. You see decoys moving and the fluidity of a good decoy as well and they move out of the way like they use their body to take the shock of the hit and they roll the dog around and then land the dog safely on the ground. It doesn't always go to plan. Like not every hit goes so well because some of these monsters can actually hit you so hard it feels like a car crashed into you. Mm. There's a really good one of Bart working. He's got a pressure cleaner and he's standing between the barrels and one of those males at his club comes barreling and you know takes him in the shin you can see the dog knocks him back probably half a metre. It hits him with such force. But Bart was ready for it. He's been doing that for a long time, and you can see him skip back as the dog hit him. Probably hurt, but it was a hell of a catch, and he just keeps going about his business. It was nice. You know, there's not very much footage of Bart decoying, and mostly it's just that kind of stuff, right? Like it's just you know, it'll be suit pants and you know, those MBBK catches where you slide back. It's very impressive. It's all about body weight transfer and that kind of stuff. And Whatever you talk to Bart about decoying, he always, he says, oh, I'm an old man. I don't want to get in. He just, he calls it getting in the pants. He's like, I'm too old to get in the pants. But I've seen him work dogs and it's magic. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, he's a phenomenal decoy and, and that's not what he's known for, right? Like he's a trainer, but not known as a decoy. There's a fluidity to it. And it's similar to, you know, you see it in other decoys, but it's like they become they're dancing with the dog. It's this beautiful, you know, they're so in sync with the dog and everything that they do is in reaction to the dog in, in making it more powerful and, and making the dog feel a certain way and, and just the way that they move. And there was a particular day I remember watching Bart with a puppy working in the legs. And I remember I was just watching, you know, like jaw drop sort of watching someone working <laughs> like oh, you know you think you're okay at something like oh yeah i know how to work a puppy i don't know how to pull puppy in the legs that's all right and then you see you see someone do it and you're like oh i, I don't know shit <laughs> I your, don't know anything. were your pants shrinking on that day <laughs> <laughs> but i just thought to point it out because you don't see much of it and yeah and he's got a it's a knack with every dog. That's, I mean, that's his superpower, but it's, it's, it's just the way that he becomes in tune. Even to watch him play tug with a dog, you see that on a big wedge, mm. there's just the way that he moves his body and he gets so in sync with the dog and, and there's, you know, there, there's strength components to that kind of stuff. You can see, reminds me of a lot of kettlebell work, like the way that he works a dog and mo the way most good decoys do is like, like tight tug to the body, you know, like it's keeping that you know, the, the weight in tight to the, the core so that you're not getting thrown around. And, and because you've got control of it, then you can manipulate it better. The dog gets the right feedback, all that kind of shit. And that's one of the things I think in the bite sports space. And, and when you talk about the big hits and that kind of stuff, I think that that the, the decoy as an artist gets kind of overlooked. And I think that a lot of people, you know, that there was a phase a few years ago that the sort of internet went through where it was all about the decoys and people forgot about the dogs. And there was, it was all about the fancy decoy bullshit. And it was, uh, I thought that was pretty like almost a bit of a destructive phase in, in decoying a few years ago. And you see that online where that was more important, who was in the suit than who, than, than the dog. And I think sometimes people can forget that the decoy is the meant to be the loser, right? Like, and unless you're testing the dog, the decoy is meant to be the loser. The decoy is meant to, the dog is meant to come off as the winner mm. and you should only, you should like, you know, you shouldn't be looking at a decoy as, as like, you know, 
look what he did to that dog. It should be more a case of, from my uh, my perspective anyway, it's what I think is that you should be, look how well he moves to make that dog react, you know, rather than look how well he suckered that dog into biting him there or missing there or something like that. It should be, you know, more, you know, and, and in trial, that that's what you do. But in training, it should be more like, look at the fluidity with which he moves and how well he reads a dog and, and look at that dog that, you know, entered the field maybe a little bit unsure and, and left feeling super powerful and, and, and all those sorts of things. I think that's one of the strengths that we could do in the bite sports is teach people that because, you know, when you see it, it comes up every now and again, you see some dickhead with a newspaper wrapped around his arm doing stupid bite work in someone's backyard and like, that's what goes viral, right? You don't, yeah. you never see a video of, of Sean Edwards working a puppy and playing the clown and playing the jester and developing that puppy and, and having a life changing confidence building session, which he does all the time with dogs. It's like no big deal to him. He does it every day. You don't see that. No one watches that and, and ogles over it and sends it to their friends. And is like, oh my God, you got to check this out. What we do send around is... Jono turning up to his mate's house. There's that, even that video where the guy's got like 15 teddy bears taped to his arm. <laughs> have you seen that Yes, one? I have. Yeah. <laughs> so like they're the ones that people are looking at and go like, oh, these are people that train dogs. And, and that's where like causing, that's a, a place where we have to have some distinction, but that becomes a little bit dangerous as well. Like, yep, backyard Jono's getting dogs to bite teddy bears taped to their arm. That's a problem, right? But then when we have people that are French ring saying, no, I'm different from Mondio ring and Mondio being like, no, no, if UPSA people can't play. And then IPO even the worst, because, or IGP, because you guys bite suits and your dogs are totally different. Like that's where we get ourselves in trouble is that division that way. And I think that like we need to be a little bit more – liberal in our acceptance and going like, yeah, you play a sport. It, it might not be the one I play, but it's a, you know, it's a recognized sport largely. It has some credibility. It may not be the one that I want to play, but I accept that it is legit, right? That you're training your dog for a purpose. You're meeting a, a an objective standard. There's rules that are written that I can read online, right? Like we need to all those people, no matter which one of those sports you're playing, we need to all stick together and work together as a team rather than separating into minor factions. And the, the, what we do need to separate from is the Jonos who are wrapping newspapers around their arms and breaking into people's houses in balaclavas and trying to get their Labradors to bite them. There's a degree of intelligence. This comes from early days, whether it was biblical or whatever, but there's a lot of archives of tribes who came together, even tribes that warred together at, at points in time. But when they realized they were fighting a common enemy that was going to override all of them, they would still get together and amass themselves as one big tribe with all their chieftains and so forth. And this is a good time to do things like this because we're always going to be at war. Unfortunately, it's not like a, a violent war or anything like that, but there is going to be pressure from the outside from these people who are seeing these old Jonos who are going to say, okay, when I see that, it reminds me of these other people who are posing on the internet doing all their sort of stuff because they don't see a difference. We do. Of course we do. You, me, and yeah. all the other interested people, we all see amazing work when we're watching great decoys and great trainers work. We know what we're looking at. But Mr. and Mrs. Smith, who are watching this, who just happen to come across it by chance when they're scrolling through TikTok, they see this and they go, holy shit, that looks aggressive. What the hell would you want to train a dog to do that for? And 
the reason I know that happens is because I've heard people say that. Showing my age, I've been around before the whole social media came from. We didn't get to pose on social media and do all the like farming. It just didn't happen. You know, there weren't the crowds of people to admire your work and so forth. You just, you did it because you loved it. Like you'd go down there and I guess the people who came down to watch, they were your little TikTok fans and so forth, but there was 20 of them <laughs> instead of 2 million of them. So I remember times where people who came to watch would bring their families down. They go, oh, I don't know what you brought me here for. I don't know why these people would train dogs to do this. And they'd kind of scold you from the sidelines saying, oh, this is irresponsible, training dogs to do this. And you kind of look at them, but from your perspective, you'd be going, you're an idiot. What do you know? But from their perspective, like they're thinking the same thing, like you're an idiot. Why would you train a dog to do that? Yeah. And this is where we all keep saying this same word. Like it's a, this is our myopic mantra of this generation is education needs to be better. If we can come together and we can form these unities with, like I said, you know, like the the type of people that I want to serve with, I want people who are not only good speakers, but good educators and and balanced people who don't lose their temper and and don't get angry or don't get even or then don't go out and put a, a spray on social media that then undoes all the work that you just spent six months trying to do. You, you just have to understand that the only way that you get through these people is you just keep putting educational pieces out. You just, as you were saying before, show the balance, show perspective, show the dog and the trainer. Leaping into another topic that you mentioned before, when you were talking about there was a lot of decoys who were spending time just doing the look at me decoying work of yesteryear. The perspective of all of that should be that this is a beautiful choreography that's done between the handler, the decoy, the dog, and sometimes the training crew. There's yeah. there's a lot of people that are involved in all of this coming together. And, and that's where as an organization or as a movement or as a people, that, that's what we've got to recognize is there's a lot of componentry that all goes into this. As much as the decoy, the decoy is often part of the senior training team, but there's also without the consideration and the attentiveness of the handler, Again, this is going to be fuckery because they'll mistime it. There'll be problems with the dog. I know you can say, well, we could just back tie the dog and remove the handler, which we've had to do in the past when handling hasn't been so good, is you've just had to back tie the dog and you've just say, look, you hang on to the lead, but don't do anything else. Let me do the work until I can increase your competency. So not only are you training a dog, but you're also training a handler at the same time. But you've still got to get to the point where that handler's got to take the dog off the back tie and the handler's then got to start interacting with the dog because if they're going out to the competitive field, they need to be a part of that picture because without that, they won't have any control over the dog. The dog won't listen to them. It's going to be an absolute shit show. And that happens. You know, sometimes dogs get out into training fields in early sessions and it's a shit show. But that either... A, gets them to understand, okay, I understand what my trainer's been telling me now. I know what I need to do. I know, you know, I know what I need to do to turn this around. I need to spend more time. I need to stop fucking around when I come down to training and implement more. Or they say, okay, this is not for me. This was a, a giant mistake. I just don't have the time and the dedication to put in this. It's too much effort, too much work, or I'm all thumbs and, and two left feet. I just don't have the capacity to do it. And it's usually a discipline thing. It's not really related to you can't do it. It's just that there is a part of you that doesn't really want it that much. Mm. Yeah, to be involved properly in any of the bite sports, it's a huge level of commitment. Absolutely. Like it's a really, you've got to live, eat, breathe it to be successful anyway. And you see the people who just kind of 
fuck around and play in it and and they're never very successful and and in fact they end up kind of chasing their tail all the time and you know the people that turn up to a club once every six weeks and you're like where were we at last time what are we doing again and have we been able to progress here and you're just kind of flapping around in the breeze they're never successful and i don't know i'm not talking like become the world champion successful i'm talking about just get your titles yeah it's a huge level of commitment just to title a dog in the basic titles you really got to put in the time or you know be an exceptional trainer yourself there's probably people listening like oh i, I don't do that much it's like yeah but you probably have a, you probably have an extremely high skill set but the other thing too about that with the elementary work that you start doing like the the very early basics when you're starting that is some of the hardest work too like even though the upper titles are hard and they've got their surmountable degrees of difficulty the basic stuff is the hardest stuff because you've got a dog that doesn't know jack shit and you've got a handler that probably doesn't know much as well if they you know they've just got involved in it or they're relearning everything again or they just don't have that natural tenacity to work with their dog so the basics entry level and level 1 are very hard levels and then when you get to sort of get to that medium level when you like you've become more efficient as a handler your dog has got skills under it yes it's still hard and as i said there's surmountable difficulties there but you're underway then, like you sort of know the routine and you've, even though you've got to expand on the routine and there's other additional things that you've got to learn, it's not as hard as learning it all and getting in there. And that's why it does take a large degree of dedication, especially in that early age. And for people who are listening to this, they're probably going, you're a dickhead. Like some of these upper levels are just crushing. They are. I agree. I'm with you. I'm supporting you. I'm saying these there's surmountable difficulties when you go up. But you're also, you know, because you're already built that foundation groundwork and you've built your first couple of floors, the next couple up that you're doing, yeah, you still have to construct them and you still have to build them and you still have to spend time on them, but you're there. You're within the frameworks of what you're doing. So it's adding, but it's still replicating off what you've got. You are stacking on top of it and you are building and there's more coming of what you need to do. But the dog's going, oh, yeah, this picture is familiar. It feels homely to me. I have a a kinship with what we're trying to do here. And you don't seem so ostentatious with with how you've come out onto the field like anymore. Like you and I sort of have an understanding in what we're trying to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, comfort level of fluidity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, spot on. That like every scenario is built upon the one that preceded it. And and you look at that in say in PSA, like all the level one surprise scenarios are a light version of the level two scenarios. Like mm. so everything is preparing you for the next. And that's why, you know, I get so obsessed with laying strong foundations because there's no point sort of getting ready for some bizarro level three scenario that when you're not ready and and like totally capable of doing with your eyes closed the level one scenarios because those level three ones are going to involve the elements of those level one so you just got to build slowly and get a strong foundation and everything else just bolts onto that really really simply i think anyway Mm. with your committee when's that becoming a thing we're starting to do all the bolting together now i think Probably once we get conference out of the way, because conference had to go from actual to virtual. So Jerry, I think, is going to commit to doing a bit of a chat for the group on PSA. And then Mm -hmm. we've got myself and I believe Michael Ellis has lended himself to it and Janet Edwards. And I believe there is another speaker coming on board and I've just got to find out who that actually is. But we're going to do a little bit of a round table on some bite sports that are happening and 
people's involvement in them and what they've done and and just a bit of a roundtable question for ICP members to have a bit of a chat with those people who have been involved and titled and still are actively involved in the training. It's cool. I'm excited about bringing more of that part of the dog world into the IACP space. I think, you know, as we've been saying for a long time, we really need a strong professional organization. And if it's going to be IACP, then it needs to have your know, representation and interest in not just those, you know, the pet dog space within North America. If it's going to be the IACP, they really need to put in the work for international, which, mm. you know, they're doing with you being involved in it. There is a level of requirement from the IACP itself, but then from the international people, there's a level of requirement to do. It's a member's organization. You know, sometimes you hear people say like, what are they doing for me? And it's like, well, what would you like? Because you have to start doing that. It's not like there's a person that is going to be like, there's no big office full of hundreds of people working on stuff. Like it's a member's organization to group of people coming together to work on stuff. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's largely... Well, it is. It's volunteer-based. Like, unless you're actually in the admin as a paid employee doing the filing and the clerical stuff, all the board of directors are all volunteers. They're members who have volunteered extra time to go in there and have to deal with the slings and arrows of people who are happy and unhappy. And it's it's a lot of work. You know, it's a a lot of work. People probably don't understand that. The only people really getting paid by the IACP are the admin staff that are – not the doers of what the organization does, right? They're just the admin of running the website and posting stuff and all the back end stuff, not the actual going out there and running educational conferences and and passing on the message and assisting with the legislative committee and attempting to get service dog legislation stood up and all the all the bullshit that the ISCP is involved in, that's not the paid people that are doing that. That's the volunteers doing No, the, the paid people are Dana and Maddie, the ladies who run the office. Like, But they're doing the clerical work, like all the filing and yeah. the memberships and everything behind the board. Like, That's not volunteer. That's actually physically paid work. And every every organisation, every non-profit has those type of people that they need to actually have paid yeah. office professionals to come in and do the work. Whereas, you know, the people who help make the decisions and help decipher what's going on throughout the organization, the, the board of directors and the presidents and VPs and so forth, you know, all of these people are just members like everybody else. So if you're not happy with your board of directors and you're not happy with your presidents and so forth, well, eventually one day when it all comes up for grabs, then step in and take, make, a, shot at the title. take a shot at the title and then, uh, and then come and see what it's all about. We're close to wrapping up, but it's a lot of times I remember when we were running the, the Rottweiler Club in Victoria, and that was all volunteer work as well. But as I said to all the trainers that were working there, who it was a mixed match of people that were in the Rottweiler Club and people who were NDTF students, I said, if you take this job, if you come in here and want to train puppies or dogs or everything like that, don't tell me, oh, I can't do the next two weeks, I can't do the next four weeks. I said, you've got to be committed to this job. You've got to stand here like you're, you're being paid a salary for it because you put your hand up, you've got to treat it like a professional gig. You can't look at it like, oh, I'm just a member just like you, so suck eggs. You get what you get and that's it. I said, you've basically said, I want to rise above. I want to do the work. Here I am. I'm doing my time. I'm here to serve. The best people in those jobs are the people who understand that serving other people doesn't mean that you're beneath them or that you owe them anything. Well, you do owe them something. You owe them professionalism. That's what the people involved in those jobs are doing. And it doesn't mean that these people are rogue scholars and they're going to get everything right all the time because some of these people who do get in either through popularity or they want to commit at the time, they're still learning on the job. 
And yeah. even though people are maybe happy or neutral or unhappy about that position, that's just the realities. They're still learning on the job. I need to pay you a bit of a compliment here, mate, with this is because I do believe that this probably spawned from an idea that you had a while ago. I think that you sort of sowed the seed about getting this protection sports thing going and, you know, getting this collaboration going. So kudos to you for that because, you know, I think that your thoughts and wishes are hopefully going to become a successful reality. Well, I mean, but I had the idea of it a couple of years ago and it was that I wanted to bring in sport dog trainers from the protection sport staff into the IACP mm. and grow the numbers. And when I was pushing them, I got the pushback of like, well, why? Like, what does the IACP offer me? And there was stuff to offer. There was, you know, there's like the legislative committee and, and things, but now having that we offer like, Hey, we are, we have a committee that is in your interest and it's not just about how to get you in. It's how to serve you when you are in. And, and, and hopefully that causes a huge growth. And then what I hope that at the conferences and so forth, that level of training knowledge, that nuanced, highly detailed, highly skilled training knowledge is getting disseminated to everybody. That's the plan. And the great thing about that too, is that they're trainers that are loved and respected in the community anyway. Like you're getting to, you know, like as you said, I think you may have said it a while ago, you're actually getting to ride on the shoulders of giants. So for the people who are part of the ICP membership, if you're listening to this, they're people that you admire and do their courses online. Speaking yeah. of, speaking of our, our beloved brother over in Pennsylvania, Sean, uh, he's got a decoy seminar coming up very soon, I think in Arkansas or somewhere like that. I saw him yeah. advertising online. So if you want to go and learn from someone who's a damn good decoy and get out there and, and work some dogs and work with somebody who dedicates his entire life to doing it, go out there and spend some time with Sean. He's a hell of a guy, like one of the nicest people you ever meet. He's as funny as hell. Yeah. And, you know, like he's a very, very talented decoy and, He's been out to here a bunch of times. You, me and him often weep over the social media together that all this COVID shit's happening and he can't be here. You know, like I got the nod from Jerry and Janet to judge. You've been decoying your ass off and breaking your poor old back, getting dogs going, getting them up ready for trial. We're just about to kick it off. And then Delta goes, yeah. I That am. trial is like in two weeks. Two weeks. That, uh, yep. yep. So yep. that shit the bed. And- I haven't even, I haven't even caught a dog in two months. Yeah, I was really looking forward to it. I'm, I saw how dedicated everybody was. It was my first judging appointment. It was really exciting. I was really, you know, like I'd started reading all the rules again and I was literally putting in some hard yards to make sure that I was judging well. I was representing the club and the sport and the institution well and COVID decided to put a red hot poker right up our bottoms. That's life. Yeah, we did have a topic. Yeah, and- we had a topic and we just totally missed it because man, I didn't know you were doing that and so I guess we talk about all those kind of things and we can keep that topic up our sleeve it's a timeless one it's not like it's topical so mm. we can we can whip that out next week well it this has only just happened it's not like it's been in planning and I've kept it for you for a long time it's only just happened but because yeah. um, like I think it happened a week ago but the whole European membership committee which is quite sad there is some sadness there and I I really am fond of those people and they're hard-working people Cassia, Lucas, Rachel, Alicia, and Jack that were on there. And there's other people who have lended their time there before. I just want to give a shout out to all them because I do love them all. They're good people and they're hard workers and they, you know, we're almost successful in getting a conference going up in, into Europe, but COVID has really jammed one in the sides of everybody. And this is a disappointing thing. I think John's going to step in there and help them with the European membership side of things while I, I step out and move into the protection sports, I think we're calling it. 
nonetheless, they're good people. I do want to see them succeed. I have nothing but respect for them. They are committed. They're timely. They were holding their meetings on time. They were really, you know, they were crunching the numbers, getting everything ready. Like we had a hotel, we had speakers, we had everything ready to go. And, it, you know, it, it is a blow to them. So I don't want them to lose momentum. They're absolutely wonderful people. They've done a lot, and I still believe there's so much more that that can be done. I just want them to see this through because I really do want to see expansion of, as you said before, Pat, I do really want to see this international side of the ISCP take over. Yeah. Being on the board of directions can be – it's one of those things that it sounds nice in title, but it's a shitload of work. It's a big commitment, and some days it goes your way and other days it doesn't go your way, but that's the way boards and committees work and so forth. And sometimes it can be very fruitful and other times it can be very, very frustrating. And and sometimes it can be a little emotionally draining for people. But I do want to commend everybody who's who's getting in there and doing the work. There's some good workers in there. That means that we just need the support from the membership to remember that sometimes it doesn't go as fast as you'd like it to. There are times where – there are decisions that don't go your way and sometimes they do go your way and that's how businesses work as well. Yeah, man, there's a lot of hurdles in everything at the moment. I think that's the key, you know, a lot of remembering that and before you get too upset about stuff, I, I read some of the comments of people really pissed off and upset about the conference being cancelled. I'm not up to date on it because, you know, I wasn't going, so I wasn't following. And I get it that I get that you would be pissed off. And I guess people put themselves into different risk categories with the COVID. And like, if you're outside of a high risk category, you're not in it yourself and nobody in your life is, then you should be fucking pissed off that things aren't steaming along and and events that you wanted to go to and you were happy to go to in spite of the risks uh, aren't going ahead. But then there's also people who aren't in that same situation. You know, you might have an asthmatic kid. The thing for me, it was a big eye opener when we had Axel and he has a compromised lung, you know, not that I was not taking COVID seriously. Of course I was, but I, I wasn't really worried about getting it. I'm, I'm fit and healthy. And I was like, well, you know, like it'll be what it'll be. But then as we're leaving the hospital, the pediatrician told us like, Hey, you got a kid with a compromised lung. We're like, okay. Yeah. Like now we're scared of it. And she's like, not for him. Like he's a baby. He's very unlikely to contract it. But if you get it and you get it bad, you're not going to be able to care for this kid. And I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> like now I'm in a whole nother risk category, right? Mm, so mm. now I'm really in this lockdown. I'm really locked down because I'm like, I don't want to get COVID and be really sick and have a newborn baby. Man, I'm I'm functioning on two hours fucking sleep a night as it is. Yeah. Right. Like I don't need to layer. So like any sickness, I don't want to layer that onto there, regardless of whether it's this worldwide fucking pandemic or whatever. Like I can't afford to even get a cold currently, let alone fucking the Rona. And I think that, it, you know, you got to appreciate that everybody else is in different situations. Everybody's got to do what's, what's suitable and, and consider their own risk case and, and weigh up the checks and balances themselves and do what they have to do to keep themselves happy and safe. And, and, and I think that everybody just kind of has to respect everybody else's position in that. And I think with growth of the ISCP, there's people right now who, you know, I, I want it to grow internationally more. I want there to be more events. I want there to be an event in Europe. But right now there's people who don't know where their fucking next meal is coming from. Right. You know, the guy that runs the cafe down the street for me that I used to go to all the time, he's permanently shut because he's a one man band running around and he's, he got caught. There's a police parking spot out the front of his place. And like, he got caught too many times, not wearing his mask while he's individually trying to run a cafe by himself. And they've, they've permanently shut him. You know what I mean? Is so that like, the Lebanese guy that's on the news? Yeah. Yeah. Abe, yeah. So like, yeah, he's wondering, he's wondering how he's going to feed himself now. Not like, 
You know, like so, like there's there's people with big issues, man. So oh yeah, absolutely. Really you know, like, like it's very bad. sobering when you when you deep dive into it like that. And often in times like this, you you only sort of look into your scope of view, the things yeah. that are going on in your backyard. But when you put into perspective, there are millions of people who forget about what's happening here. What about what's happening over in Afghanistan? You know, like all that sort of stuff is really sobering what's happening around the world. Like there's some diabolical shit going on in every corner and some people are really getting right royally wronged in, in a lot of stuff that's going on. So it's not all bad news, of course. You know, there's good news stories. It's just hard to find good news when there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people who are they're looking for the next meal. These are yeah. people who are successful business owners and things were going their way and they were doing the right thing. They were good community people. They were cooking up a storm in their cafes and doing the supply and demand for the community and so forth. And now nothing. You're locked down in your house thinking, the bank's still going to knock on my door. The tax man's yeah. still going to say, where's my taxes? In this lockdown, so like, you know, I lost my biggest revenue stream. Like I'm lucky I've got a few different ones and, and that's why I'm so active on Instagram now. I'm trying to just, you know, promote the online course. I'm, I'm lucky that I have to keep some money coming in. But, you know, a lot of my friends, certainly Jane's friends, they're tattoo artists and tattoo artists, most tattoo artists live day to day because they yep. get paid daily. They live day to day with fuck all savings and they're unable to work and they're artists. So that's not like, you know, they're, they don't have fallback of, oh, I can go, I, like all the fallback jobs that they have are also off the table as well, right? So like they're struggling, man. And and when you hear people you know, whinging about minor shit, it's like, hey, come on. There's people in pretty bad fucking situations. And don't even get me started about Afghanistan. That That's a whole nother situation. Yeah, it would be for you. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, I suppose anyway, we better, uh, better wrap, wrap it up there. All right. That's it for the episode where we tell you about Glennie Wenning getting his new committee in the IACP, <laughs> the, the Protection Sports Committee. And I suppose people can start if you're a member. What do you got to do to be on that committee? You got to be a member of the IACP, professional member of the IACP, probably, I imagine. The type of people I'm looking for involved in that committee, without saying this disrespectfully, I kind of want the tribal chieftains of the bite sports involved in it, you know, like people who are involved in being movers and shakers. but also, if they are not but willing, workers as well, right? We're, we're absolutely, we're absolutely workers. workers. Yeah. yeah, like if if you're a busy person and you know that sounds like it would be a good idea, but you just know that you couldn't commit to it because you're scratching to make a dollar yourself and you're doing your onlines and everything, and that's not going to work out for you. Maybe somebody that's in your or under your watch, part of your group that you believe would be a great person, a worker, somebody that will help work with you and speak with you and for you and so forth. That would be great as well. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Get in touch with you. Mm. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is Patreon. Just this morning, I was live in Patreon, just just answering questions all over the place. I'm doing it again in a few days, doing it on Zoom with a bunch of people. We're going to watch some videos. We're going to have a wonderful time. I'm about to make a new update video for Patreon. When you log into there, if you want to become one, within the next few days, there'll be a new video because I've got a, well, you'll see it. <laughs> Everyone will see it, but I, I've got a plug in for Final Cut that, I, I want to use. It's got a Patreon logo. So awesome. Anyway, I'm going to make a video. I've been watching uh, your um, your super duper reels that you put out. You, the one that you did today with Remy doing all the little flips in between your legs that was pretty sporty. And you got the Hilltop Hoods song to it. And then yeah. you did your Opera yep. and Canine logo where it turned digital in the end. It was pretty cool. Yeah. 
Wait, so so Very right impressive. now in my life, I've got no time to film. So I take the dogs out, set out the camera, I just train the dogs. I just do my own thing and then yeah, the camera gets stuff or it doesn't. And that's why some days I've got one, some days I don't. But what I do have time for is sitting there editing because while I'm feeding a newborn baby who never wants to be put down and I, he's quite happy in my lap, like he kind of like sits in my lap, I sit right here in this chair in front of that computer and I've got heaps of time for editing. <laughs> Actually doing any work other than that of being productive, creating content, zero time, but editing content, heaps of time. So it's like this catch is this catch 22. I've got nothing to edit, but I, I've managed to, you know, I try, I have to take the dog out every day. So if I just set the camera up, sometimes I get something good. Sometimes I don't. But hey, yeah, um, while you're there, tell, tell people your website, just in case they live under a rock and they don't know. Operantcanine.com.au. You can go to there, online course. You can follow all the links in all the socials. It all drives you to that online course. It's $500 redos, and it's pretty much everything I know. I was talking to someone today about, they were like, oh, you should have some sort of other, um, you know, other online packages. I was like, the problem I have is like, that's got everything in it. I wasn't smart enough at the start to break it into smaller chunks and sell them individually and trickle them out. I was like, yeah, here's everything I know. Here's every bit of video content I've ever put together. I'll consolidate it all. I'll put it into the right order and put it there. What they can so do anyway, is they can do a consult there. with you after they've done the course. Like if they want to know more yeah. and they want to get into the that's meat, they can hit you up and get into your Calendly and do a that's date a with you. That's a true fact. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Good plugging, Glenn. Good work. Yeah. You've been doing a lot of the onlines. Yeah, look, I have. It's been an absolute blessing that people want to listen to the shit that I'm selling. So it's been it's been <laughs> <laughs> look to yeah, be to be honest, like. it's uh, I've had some really good conversations with some great people and Yeah, I love doing it. I got uh my first UK person the other day, which was really exciting. That was fun and Jacob over from the UK, he's he's my first. Yeah. So been doing I'll quite do a lot UK. with people in the USA and, and Australia, but first UK person. Nice. All right. And the other way to support the show is Teespring. Get yourself some cool merch, tapestries, towels. Do we have socks? We should probably have socks, surely. We've got, we got, well, there is the option to get socks, but I haven't made them. Oh, well, <laughs> we'll have socks by the end of the week. You can even get Rona masks <laughs> if you want one, if you want to make them up. Yeah, yeah, let's get Rona masks. Why not? Cool. All right, that's all going. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook group. Hey, in the Facebook group, there's some like any e-collar people getting uppity about e-collar posts. So just be cool in there. Hey, you're Everybody's in our backyard. So people let yeah. talk about these sort of things. If you don't like it, you don't have to say anything or you can elect to walk out or you can do it one step better. You can learn about some things. You can ask some, yeah. ask some, ask some very even questions. And I'm sure people would like to have a conversation with you about it rather than have a fight with you. Exactly. Any space that, we control like that Facebook group. Everybody is welcome and everybody's opinions are welcome. Just don't be a dick. ELE. Right? ELE. Everybody love everybody. Exactly. Mm. And if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the canonparadigm.com. That's it. Goodbye. <laughs>